We are covering Isaiah, which is the next pre-Assyrian prophet, and he's the last pre-Assyrian prophet. And Isaiah is interesting because Isaiah actually bridges from the pre-Assyrian exile, so he's preaching before Israel comes, or sorry, he's preaching before the Assyrians come, and then the Assyrians come and sack Israel, and then he continues to preach to Judah. So he kind of is the pivot in between these two things. Now, Isaiah is not in chronological order either, because when we start chapter 1, the Israel has already been sacked, they've already gone into exile, and Isaiah is preaching to Judah. But then partway through Isaiah, Israel has not been sacked, the Assyrians have not come, and he's kind of preaching to them both. And then after that, Israel has been sacked, and the Assyrians have come, he's preaching to them. So it's not exactly in chronological order when we're dealing with this book. Many people debate the authorship of Isaiah. There are two major views that Isaiah wrote the whole book. Some people believe that Isaiah, the first part of Isaiah is written by a what's called Isaiah, the real Isaiah. And then starting with Isaiah 40 going on, it's written by what's called a Deutero-Isaiah. Deutero meaning second. So some guy who's not Isaiah, but he's writing as if he is Isaiah. And one of the reasons a lot of scholars kind of point this out is that the second part of Isaiah is taking place in the future. And Isaiah is speaking as if the exile's already over with, or they're in exile. Sorry, they're in exile, and they're about ready to return. And that hasn't happened yet, chronologically speaking. That's the future. And so a lot of scholars are like, well, there's no way he could know what's going on, especially with Cyrus II and all this kind of stuff, unless he lived much later. And there's other scholars that point out a difference in vocabulary and a difference in language and that kind of stuff. And so they think that there's two Isaiahs that are writing this two half books. Now, ultimately, that doesn't threaten theology or the Bible or anything like that because, like I already mentioned, there's a lot of books that we have no idea who the author is. There's not a problem. Although there are a lot of really respected scholars also believe that Isaiah is written by one person and that it's very possible that he knew the future because he's a prophet and God is speaking through him. And second, people's vocabulary does change over a lifetime. I know even my vocabulary, as I've been writing and stuff, has changed than it was when I was much younger. So that change of vocabulary could be a result of that. Either way, that is just a scholarly thing that's thrown out. There's other people out there who think there's a third Isaiah who's writing, um, but that's a very minor view that's rejected by a lot of people. So just to be aware of that, if you hear people talk about that kind of stuff, in my opinion, I don't really care. Um, I'm more interested in the final text. And it's obvious that all of Isaiah matches up with all the scripture. And there's a coherent, and nobody's questioning whether the second part of Isaiah is scripture or not. They're just questioning whether it's the same guy or not. So just be aware of that debate. So he is writing mostly during the time of Uzziah. Right when Uzziah is dying, he's the king before Hezekiah and Ahaz. So mostly through the reign of Uzziah, then there's Ahaz, and then there's Hezekiah. And those are the dominant three kings of Judah that he's ministering through, and including Jeroboam II. So Isaiah is broken into two major books. The first book is Isaiah 31 through 39. And for the most part, this reflects the concerns of 
the Israelite, Israel's um, socio-political realities. It's dealing with a lot of the social injustice, the idolatry, the treaties with foreign nations. It's basically dealing with a lot of Israel's sins in that result. And then chapters 40 through 66, they're in exile, and he's looking at or talking to the people in exile that's in the future, and he's talking about how they should treat Babylon, and they're looking forward to their return. So basically the first half of the book, 1 through 39, is them, Judah, going about ready to go into exile, dealing with all their sins, and 40 through 66 is them currently in exile, about ready to return, living under the reality of Babylon. So is an Isaiah that Assyria is now a very real reality. Assyria has built their empire. They're, con- they're, they're bringing conquests across the world. They're shaking everything up. They're deporting everybody, which we've already talked about in the Book of Kings. And then it's introducing the new threat of Babylon. So Babylon is a new threat being introduced. They're going to be coming on the scene. And there's a lot of passages dealing with Babylon. So that's kind of where what Isaiah is pretty much addressing. The first division, chapters 1 through 12, is the restoration after judgment. And so God is going is mostly promising a future restoration. He's going to condemn them, judge them as usual. But there's a big focus on God's promises to restore them. And so now we're kind of getting to the point where he's already kind of like attack them, rebuke them, all that kind of stuff. But Isaiah is going to focus a lot more on God's restoration in these passages. So when chapter 1 begins, historically speaking, in 722, the Assyrian army sacked Israel, which is the ten northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, and deported them in exile. That happened in 722. In 701, so about 21 years later, the Assyrian army invaded and destroyed the crops of Judah in the south and began to attack them. This is all recorded in 2 Kings 18. And we talked about that in the book of Kings where Hezekiah is king and Sinanacherib is beginning to attack Judah after they've already sacked Israel. And yet Hezekiah's prayer of throwing the scroll that Sennacherib wrote to him, threatening to sack him and take him over, and that no other god and no other nation has ever been able to stop him. So why does Hezekiah think he's any different? And Hezekiah responds, he takes that scroll to God, he prays to God, and God sends Isaiah of Amaz, this Isaiah, and tells him that Sennacherib is not going to take you. He's not going to sack Judah, the Assyrians will be driven away, and they will never, ever, ever, ever come back. So Yahweh delivered Jerusalem from a serious attack, and this is the aftermath of that. So Isaiah chapter 1 begins with Assyria. Judah has been saved and protected from Assyria's sacking, and they've been promised Assyria will never come back. However, Judah, after Hezekiah's death, Manasseh came along and started leading them in idolatry again. And so God, and even during Hezekiah's life, there was still idolatry. He was the most godly king Israel's ever had. He destroyed all the high places, unlike any other king ever had. And he brought lots of reforms, but that doesn't change the hearts of the Arab day normal people all the time. And so Judah still got a lot of sins, and Isaiah is now rebuking them and saying, learn from your sister Israel. She didn't repent. She went to exile. Please do not let that happen to you. So that's kind of the historical context of Isaiah chapter 1 as we begin. 
So chapter 1, verse 1. Here is the message about Judah and Jerusalem that has been revealed to Isaiah, son of Amos during the time when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah reigned over Judah. Listen, O sky, and pay attention, O earth, for Yahweh speaks. I raised children, Judah. I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. An ox recognizes its owner. A donkey recognizes where its owner puts its food. But Israel does not recognize me. My people do not understand. He's like, even animals know who their master is. Even animals know where the food is put every single day. But you don't recognize me as your God, and you don't recognize the blessings come from me. You give credit to the pagan gods, as Micah and Hosea have already pointed out. The sinful nature, the sinful nation is as good as dead. The people weighed down by evil deeds, they are offspring who do wrong, children who do wicked things. They have abandoned Yahweh and rejected the Holy One of Israel. They are alienated from Him. Why do you insist on being battered? Why do you continue to rebel? Your head has massive wound. Your whole body is weak. From the soles of your feet to the head, there is no spot that is unharmed. There are only bruises, cuts, and open wounds. They have not been cleansed or bandaged, nor have they been treated with olive oil. Now, this is interesting because God is like, Look, I have been punishing you for your sins for hundreds of years, over and over and over again. I punish you. And and metaphorically speaking, if this was real life and you're getting beaten up by a bully or something like that, you are bruised. Your head is like deformed. You've got bandages all over you and nothing is really like healing because you're constantly getting beat up. Why? Why do you keep disobeying? Why do you keep getting punished? I mean... Logically speaking, if I, get dis- if I disobey and I get punished, then maybe I should stop disobeying. And yet you're so stubborn, you keep disobeying and you keep getting beaten up by the enemy that I bring onto you, and yet you don't stop. And that's God's response. Your land is devastated. Your cities burned with fire. Right before your eyes, your crops are being destroyed by foreign invaders. They, have, they leave behind devastation, destruction. So remember, this is Assyria. And even though God protected Judah from Assyria taking Jerusalem, Assyria did successfully burn many fields and destroy a lot of cities that surrounded Jerusalem. Daughter Zion is left isolated, like a hut in the vineyard. Now remember, Zion is a spiritual name for Jerusalem and specifically the mountain that the temple is on. So you are now alone. Your sister is in exile. She has gone off. And you're now like a hut in the middle of a vineyard, a shelter in a cucumber field. She is a besieged city. If Yahweh, who commands armies, had not left us a few survivors, we would have quickly become like Sodom, and we would have become like Gomorrah. So basically they're saying, like, God almost wiped us all out. And Assyria has wiped Israel completely out. And we only have a few survivors and the only thing that kept us from being completely wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah is what? It's not specifically mentioned here, but everybody knows what it is. What is it? What stopped God from wiping everybody out? His covenant promises. His covenant promises. That's the only thing that kept him from doing to them what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, by the time that Assyria comes and sacks Israel... God has said that Israel has become worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, worse than the Canaanites. And then by the time Babylon comes to sack Judah, God has said that Judah has become worse than Israel. So their sins are huge. 
Verse 10, listen to Yahweh's word, you leaders of Sodom. Pay attention to our God's rebuke, people of Gomorrah. So now he specifically calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. You're basically the same thing. So listen up to me. Of what importance to me are your many sacrifices, says Yahweh. I am stuffed with burnt sacrifices of rams and fat from steers, the blood of bulls and lambs and goats I do not want. And when you enter my presence, you, do you actually think I want this? Animals trampling on my courtyard? Do, you bring me, do not bring me meaningless offerings. I consider your incense detestable. So we've already talked about this with Amos, but basically they're just sacrificing. They're, they're, they're committing social injustice. They're oppressing the poor. They're cheating people in the court systems. They're murdering people, and they're, leaving, and they're making money off of all this. And meanwhile, they're worshiping idols, and then there's no repentance. There's no change in their lifestyle. And then they go into the temple of God, and they sing songs to him, and they make sacrifices. And in the name of God, says, I hate your sacrifices. And again, in Isaiah, he's saying, I hate your sacrifices. Like, I don't really care how much you sing your heart out, how much you dedicate to the church, or any of that kind of stuff, or what kind of like prayers you say to me. When there is no justice, there is no loyalty to me throughout the week. And so he's saying the same thing again. And then he goes on and says, You observe new moon festivals. This is the beginning of the month. Sabbath and convocations. But I cannot tolerate sin-stained celebrations. I hate your new moon festivals and assemblies. They are a burden. I am tired of carrying. So this would be the equivalent of saying, I hate your Easter. I hate your Christmas. I hate your Thanksgiving. Because they're mostly about you and you making yourself wealthy or more greedy or filling your stomach or whatever than it is really about me. You do not honor me. You do not worship me. And yet you think I should be happy with this. And it's all about me. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I look the other way. When you offer your many prayers, I do not listen. Because your hands are covered with blood. So he says, look, I've stopped listening to your prayers. And I know that's like... But God never stops listening to your prayers. He's always listening. No, 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 no. Even the Second Testament, God says, husbands live in all understanding of your wives and treat them well so that your prayers are not hindered. And so God, there is a point where God says, your hands are stained with blood. Either the blood of people you've literally killed or the blood of people you're killing because you're oppressing them financially or cheating you or the people that are in need and you're walking by them and ignoring them and now you have blood in your hands metaphorically speaking from that, I'm not listening to prayers. I don't hear them. Without repentance, without faith, there is no prayers that go to heaven. And what God is making clear is, remember that God expects two things from us, obedience and repentance. This is the true relationship with God. We seek to obey him because we love him and we want to please him. But we know we can't always perfectly obey him because we're sinners. So when we disobey him, we mess up, we repent. And then true repentance means turning away from it and going the other way, which I would say means accountability, bringing things into your life to keep you from turning around and going back after it again. And doesn't mean that if you do that again and go back after it, you're a horrible Christian and you're not saved or you're not really obeying. It just means you're at least pursuing that. You're making an effort. And remember, the real goal is, am I better this year than I was last year? Not how quickly I've become perfect. And so God is saying, if that's not happening in your life, because there's blood in your hands, there's no repentance, 
then I'm not listening. I'm not listening. But that doesn't mean that he never will hear, because then he goes on and he says this, wash, cleanse yourselves, remove your sinful deeds from my sight, stop sinning, learn to do what is right, promote justice, give the oppressed reason to celebrate, take up the cause of the orphan, defend the rights of the widow. So he's saying, if you repent, which is cleansing of your sins, washing the blood off, then I will hear you. I will bring you to me, and I will embrace you again. Come, let's consider your options, says Yahweh. Though your sins have stained you like color red, you become white like snow. And though they are as easy to see as the color scarlet, you can become white like wool. If you have a willing attitude and obey, then you will again eat good crops of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Now for, know for certain that Yahweh has spoken. Now remember, we've talked about this multiple times. God's judgment is harsh. But he, he always gives you an opportunity to repent. He always sends prophets over and over. I mean, we're already seeing hundreds and hundreds of prophets have come through Israel. And this is our fifth written prophet who has spoken over a hundred year period. And he's always giving warnings, warnings of what's coming, opportunities to repent. And he says this, let's consider your options. If you are willing to have a humble attitude and obey and come to me, then I will bless you and I will make the land abundant for you. Or you can refuse and continue to rebel and the sword will devour you. This is your options. They have been clearly laid out for hundreds of years. They've been clearly given warning of what would happen through many, many prophets. And you have many times to repent. This is your option. And you know I'm serious. Because I have blessed you tremendously when Samuel has brought revival, when David brought revival. I have blessed you many times throughout those time periods. And Hezekiah's revival, Josiah's revival. And you've seen Israel, your sister, go into exile when they refuse to repent and they rebel. So there's no surprise here. These are your options. So then he says this, verse 21, How tragic the once faithful city has become, a prostitute. She was once the center of justice. Fairness resided in her, but now only murders. Your silver has become like dross. Your beer or your wine is diluted with water. Your officials are rebels. They associate with thieves. All of them love bribery and look for payoffs. They do not take up the cause of the orphan or defend the rights of the widow. Therefore, the sovereign Yahweh who commands armies, the powerful ruler of Israel, says this, Ah, I will seek vengeance against my adversaries. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will attack you. I will purify your metal with flux. I will remove your dross and I'll reestablish the honest judges as in the former times, wise advisors as in the early days. Then you will be called the faithful city, the righteous city. Zion will be freed by justice, and her returnees by righteousness. All rebellious sinners will be shattered. Those who abandon Yahweh will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees. That sacred trees are the groves where they worshipped idols and built monuments to the idols there. You will find so de- you f- that you found so desirable. You will be embarrassed because of the sacred orchards where you chose to worship. 
For you will be like a tree whose leaves wither, like an orchard that is unwatered. And the powerful will be like a thread of yarn, their deeds like a spark. Both will burn together, and no one will put out the fire. Now this is the imagery that God is painting. Now notice he says, a lot of translations say the, the, the Yahweh of Yahweh Almighty. And that word Almighty actually means the Yahweh of the heavenly hosts or the heavenly armies. And a lot of this is military language. What Isaiah is doing is he's setting up something that the other prophets have kind of hinted at but haven't fully unpacked like Isaiah is going to. And then Ezekiel is really going to develop it. And there's two cities. There's the Old Jerusalem and the New Jerusalem. But they're specifically referred to as the ruined city and the faithful city. So the ruined cities where all the rebellion, the corruption is happening, and God is burning their crops and destroying their city, and eventually they'll be taken to exile, and their cities will be left in ruin because of their sins. And then the, the faithful city is where he brings them back, and he restores them, and they repent, and they're righteous, and he's removed their dross. Right? We've already talked about refining. Most people know how refining of gold happens. You heat up the gold. All the impurities and the minerals come to the top. It's called dross. You take a blade. You scrape it off. It hits the furnace floor, and you don't want that, and the gold cools down, and you have pure gold. And so what he's saying is, that's what I'm going to do to you. Okay, you are the ruined city right now. This is the tale of two cities okay, from the very, very beginning. You are the ruined city right now because of your sin and your rebellion and your lack of repentance. But I am going to purify you. And he talks about this purifying fire that cannot be quenched and no one will put it out. And that's his judgment. That's the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And they're going to come and they're going to put you through the crucible, so to speak. And they're going to heat you up to the point that the wicked who are refusing to repent will be like dross. And he says, I will remove your dross and I'll scrape it off and throw it to the furnace floor to be discarded. That's the captivity. That's the death of those people. But then once my judgment is over with, and he'll unpack this a lot more in chapters 40 through 66, then I'll return you. And then you'll be a faithful city and you'll have no more dross in you. You'll have no more rebellion, no more impurities in you, and you are the faithful city. And so this is the picture that he's painting, is a city that will go through fire, and the fire is not to judge them as in, like, I hate you and I want you dead, or I, I, I want to get vengeance on you, or I'm just going to lose my temper and punish you, like Hosea says that's not the way that God operates, but it's a fire that refines you. It's a fire that purifies you and removes the dross. And out of it will come this faithful city. Isaiah sets it up in these first two chapters. But he's really going to unpack it as we get deeper and deeper into Isaiah. And what he's mostly going to unpack is the faithful city, the restored city, the purified city. We don't need the ruined city unpacked a whole lot more. He's already done a lot of that. Chapter 2, verse 1. And then he begins to describe the faithful city of the future. Here is the message about Judah and Jerusalem that was revealed to Isaiah son of Amoz. In the future, the mountain of Yahweh's temple will endure, the cosmic mountain, and the most important of mountains will be the most prominent of hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to Yahweh's mountain, to the temple of God of Jacob, so that he can teach us his requirements, and we will follow his standards. 
For Zion will be the center of mortal, moral instruction, and Yahweh will issue edicts from Jerusalem. He will judge disputes between nations, and he will settle causes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up swords against other nations, and they will no longer train for war. O descendants of Jacob, come, let us walk in Yahweh's guiding light. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should, because it's practically word for word from Micah chapter 4, which we read last week. And he talks about the exact same thing, and I described the cosmic mountain, the whole idea of what that means, so I'm not going to go into that again. But once again, I want to emphasize here that in this new Jerusalem, this faithful Jerusalem, all the nations stream up to this mountain. And we talked about that with Micah. But now Isaiah is putting a different light on it, because Amos has already made the point that all the nations are going to be judged and destroyed. And Micah also emphasized that all the nations are going to be destroyed. And when we get deeper into Isaiah, he's going to make the point that all the nations are going to be destroyed. And he makes the point even that all the nations are the ruined city, just like Judah, just like Israel. But then now he says all the nations are going to be in this faithful city, this new Jerusalem. So the question is, how can all the nations be evil and wicked and destroyed and all the nations be faithful and come to God? How does that work? The picture that he's painting here is how do all the nations get destroyed in judgment? Because the nations are wicked. The governments are wicked. The people are wicked. They deserve to die. But how do all the nations come to God? By saying all the nations, he's not saying every single individual person in every single nation is coming to God. He's saying just all the nations. Meaning there, there will be people in every single nation who will repent. Not all the nations will repent, like, in, like not the entirety of everybody who lives in that nation, and not the governments. But there will be individual people in China, and America, and Russia, and Israel, and Judah, and, and Assyria, and, and Iraq, and Iran, and they will all come to Christ, or they will all come to God, and they will repent, and they will flood into this new city that God is building. So the picture that's being painted here is... Historically speaking, he's talking about very literal cities, very little na- literal nations. When he says, for three sins, no, for four, I have this against you, Damascus. I have this against you, Gaza. Okay? I have this against you, Israel and Judah. These are very real historical places. But then when he starts talking about a faithful city that has this cosmic mountain, and people from all the nations are streaming to it. And they're all living on top of this cosmic mountain. It can't be literal. That's not it. There's no city that can hold everybody. There's no mountain that can hold everybody. And so what he's doing is moving into a metaphor. And what he's painting is a picture that the new Jerusalem is not a literal city necessary, but a category of people. A category of people. And this category of people is what makes you a part of this faithful city. What's the only thing that gains you admission in Isaiah's time? As you're thinking and listening to Isaiah, what's the only thing that gains you admission? Obedience and repentance. Okay, obedience and repentance. This is what he's saying. Those who have faith. And what Isaiah is beginning to unpack is that Israel was never, ever about ethnic descendants of Abraham. 
Yes, God chose an ethnic line of Abraham to be his people, but the purpose was to bless the world. And when he brought them out of Egypt, he brought many, 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 many Egyptians out of Egypt who put their faith in Yahweh after the plagues. Ruth, Tamar, and Rahab are very prominent examples of women and foreigners. And then we have Uriah the Hittite, the wife of Bathsheba, and Ittai the Gittite, and, and, um, and Arana the Jebusite, who sold his land to David to build the altar at the end of Samuel to make sacrifices. There's many examples of people coming in. And so what God is saying is that was the whole point. That was the whole point. But you didn't do it. But there will come a day where I will actually make that happen. And all the people flood in. And this is the point that Jesus is making. Because when he says, look, don't think because you're descendants of Abraham that you're somehow special and chosen. I can make descendants out of Abraham out of these rocks. Like I can make, the point is I can make anything a descendant of Abraham. Anything. And that was the whole point. Is going to the Gentiles. And so this is the point that Isaiah is going to begin to develop. And Ezekiel is really going to unpack this. That this, now we know this today as the church. But even the church hasn't fulfilled or the church hasn't fully realized everything that the prophets are painting. And then as we go deeper and deeper in the prophets, we'll see that the imagery that they'll keep adding to this new faithful Jerusalem will get bigger and bigger and bigger and more detailed and more complex. And you'll begin to realize, wow, that hasn't happened yet. There's that already not yet kind of a feeling that we feel as Christians. And so obviously, in hindsight, we know that there's the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And so this is the tension that I'm like, I want to do my best to help you see this as a Jew who knows nothing about Jesus and knows nothing about what's coming. And I want you to see how God progressively builds this thing. But at the same time, like we're Christians, and we can't help to immediately go to Jesus, Jesus, because we've already seen a lot of this fulfilled. And so, and that's good, and that's great, but one or two things have happened. We don't really fully appreciate the progressive revelation that God has unpacked. As a result, I don't think we fully appreciate all the details that God is really, truly unpacking for us and what God is going to do for us one day in the second coming. Because we just kind of know from the Gospels, well, well, Jesus fulfilled it, Jesus fulfilled it. And we talk like it's already all done, and it's not. And I know we don't really mean that, but that's just the way we talk in our churches. But you need to understand that if we begin to progressively see this thing get unpacked and developed and the transparency is laid on, then you're realizing, whoa, there's way more to this than what we have just grown up. The other thing too is my hope is as we begin to unpack this and you see the progressive development, you'll realize that we might have misunderstood some details too. And that there's some things that either God had never intended to do, some things that he's going to do and we didn't realize it, or some things that we think have already happened but they're not going to happen until much later. And I think we I mean, if God brings all these repetitive prophets over and over and over and over again, then I think he kind of meant us to really pay attention to the details. So that's my hope as we go through this. And we see this all get unpacked. Chapter 2, verse 6. Indeed, O Yahweh, you have abandoned your people. 
the descents of Jacob, for diviners from the east are everywhere. They consult omen readers like the Philistines do. Plenty of foreigners are around. Now remember this abandon is not abandoned. Okay? God has abandoned them because of their sins, but he hasn't abandoned them because he made covenant promises to them. So don't be confused with that. Like I said, the best language I can have for this is they're in time out. Their land is full of gold and silver, and there is no end to their wealth. Their land is full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of worthless idols, and they worship the product of their own hands. With their own fingers of fashion, men bow down to them in homage. They lie flat on the ground in worship. Don't spare them. Go up into the rocky cliffs. Hide in the ground. Get away from the dreadful judgment of Yahweh, from his royal splendor. Proud men will be brought low. Arrogant men will be humiliated. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. So the idea is that judgment is coming. And if you're faithful, then flee to the hills and hide in the caves. And that's exactly what Jesus says. And so when he's talking about the future in the Mount Olive, what's called the Mount Olive Discourse, where he's talking about the judgment's going to come one day, he says, when they start talking about peace, you run for the hills. Because peace usually means everybody's going to die. This is what he's talking about. Indeed, Yahweh who commands armies, or Yahweh Almighty, has planned a day of judgment for all the high and mighty, for all who are proud, they will be humiliated, for all the cedars of Lebanon, they that are so high and mighty, for all the oaks of Bashan, or Bashan, for all the tall mountains, for all the high hills, for every high tower, for every fortified wall, for the hardships, for all the impressive ships. Proud men will be humiliated. Arrogant men will be brought low. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Now remember, even today, we like building things bigger and taller, and that is somehow a testimony to how awesome and great we are. Even when 9-11s came, George Bush said, we will rebuild and we will rebuild bigger and stronger. And that's the idea. And so what God is saying is this, this idea of going up into the sky. Yeah, maybe today as Americans we don't have this idea that if we get higher and higher up in the sky that we'll get closer and closer to God. But we do this, have this idea that we will be more awesome and better than everybody else who couldn't do it. And so... There's a competition, even right now, you can go on YouTube and there's like these videos done of like the competition for the world's tallest building. And there's like buildings that have already been planned that are going to be like a mile tall. And their plans are already there and they're starting to build it. And there's already somebody else who's come out with plans for a two mile tall building in China that's already going to be starting to be developed because it's like you, you haven't even finished building your building yet and somebody's already ready to outdo you. Because there's just this pride that's involved in that. And God says, I'm going to bring it all down. I'm going to bring it all down. And the only one in the end who will be exalted is me. Because I'm the only one who's much higher than all of you people, no matter what your technology is. The worthless idols will be completely eliminated. They will go down into the caves of the rocky cliffs and into the holes in the ground. Basically, they're going to die and go to the grave trying to escape the dreadful judgment of Yahweh and his royal splendor. And when he rises up to terrify the earth, at that time men will throw their silver and gold idols, which they made for themselves to worship, into the caves where the rodent and bats live. So they themselves can go into the crevices of the rocks and the cliffs and opening under the rocky overhangs, trying to escape the dreadful judgment of Yahweh and his royal splendor. And when he rises up to terrify the earth, stop trusting in human beings whose life's breath is in their nostrils, for why should they be given special consideration? 
just stop this. You're worshiping idols that you're going to chuck into the cave. Like, how can that really be something that saves you? You trust in humans, kings, and treaties where their life is literally just air in their bodies and can be snuffed out so quickly. This is stupid. Stop trusting in these things. And so this is what God is calling them to. What city do you want to be a part of? 